Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Catch Jesse Eisenberg, Melissa Leo, and Tracy Morgan in Why Stop Now, available now on demand. And starting September 7th, Don't Miss Butter, starring Jennifer Garner and Hugh Jackman, available on demand before it hits theaters. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Coming up on this week's show, I tell a lengthy and disturbing story of my erotic awakening while Allison judges me in perpetual silence. Yes, exactly. As we review Ingmar Bergman's Persona. Later in the show, we'll bring you cue shots, our look at some of the current offerings on various streaming and VOD sites, all centered around a common theme. Now, inspired by Persona, we were tempted to do a show in which our personalities merge and we each talk about the other's obsessions. Matt, for example, would keep raving about how Carl Urban is his boyfriend, while I would share my deep and abiding love for Spider-Man comic books from the early 1980s. But then we remembered that we already had a theme for this week, a discussion of Sight and Sound's list of the greatest films of all time. Yeah, and it's really a shame, too, because I had a lot prepared about Carl Urban. A lot. I like him. And his hair is often so weird in movies. He's so dreamy. I like him. I have six pages of notes on Doom alone, but (laughs) we'll save it for another time because instead we're going to talk about that Sight and Sound list. But first up is Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable in which we spotlight one recommended title and give you a rundown of a few other notable films new on demand on cable. Allison, what's our pick this week? Our pick is Sleepwalk With Me, which is available on demand on August 31st and is also currently in theaters. So if it's not in a theater near you, this is your chance to see it very quickly. It's the directorial debut of comedian Mike Birbiglia, and it's also the first film to be produced by the beloved public radio show This American Life. Now, Sleepwalk With Me is an autobiographical film based on Berbiglia's own early days as a stand-up and his long-term relationship with his college girlfriend, played by Lauren Ambrose, which has reached a point where they feel like they really should be getting married, even though neither necessarily wants to that much. I'm going to tell you a story, and it's true. I always have to tell people that because inevitably someone will come up to me and they'll be like, is that true? And I'll be like, yeah. And they'll be like, was it? I don't know how to respond to that. Like, I guess I could say it louder, you know, like, yeah. And they'd be like, it's probably true. Say it louder. And now the big comedian, Matt Pandapiglio. Hey, y'all ready to lip sync? I can't hear you. That's my lip sync joke. So here's what happened. My girlfriend, Abby, and I moved in together. She's great. And my sister Janet got engaged. You're next. Coming your way, baby. Better up. And everyone started talking about marriage. How long have you and Abby been together? Eight years. Why do I remember being Ooh. so long? That's <laughs> ridiculous. Now, um, Berbiglia plays himself in Sleepwalk With Me. And, you know, that sounds like it could be self-indulgent, but it's really not. The story is so self-deprecating and honest, and it ties together this romantic stagnation 
with this growing sleep disorder that he avoids getting checked out, even as it gets worse and worse and actually starts to put him in danger. Uh, what did you think of the film? Did you like the way it tied together these different kind of symbols for getting stuck in life? Mm, I did like it. And what I liked was the fact you mentioned that it's produced by Ira Glass, This American Life. At its best, I think it feels kind of like an monologue from that show it has the sort of personal remembrance kind of feel i mean i don't think it's the most technically polished uh, film i don't know that mike birbiglia is yet like a great filmmaker but i think he's a very good storyteller which is why we listen to this american life and i think that's what you go to see the movie for and it, it has that kind of real truth to it which i really enjoyed and i think he's actually a good performer too i think he does a nice job playing himself yeah, definitely. And it's also an interesting movie in that it shows someone working at stand-up, mm. like slowly becoming better and finding his voice at stand-up, which I think is a pretty rare thing to see in a movie. It's also got a lot of cameos from uh, alt-comedy people that you'll recognize if you're a fan of podcasts. So if that's you know anything you're interested in, this is definitely a must for you to check out. Right. It, the fact that Mark Maron has a small role in it is kind of interesting. A as pivotal you, one, though. That's right. Yeah. But as you said, it is sort of about the process of becoming a stand-up comic, which is sort of what his wonderful podcast, WTF, is all about. So in some ways, his presence kind of signifies that the movie is going to be about that as well. So when is that one going to be available, Allison? That is available on August 31st. Okay, two more picks for you, movies that are coming to On Demand. The first will be available on August 30th. It's called VHS. This is a anthology film of found footage shorts. It's directed by a whole host of indie filmmakers, including David Bruckner, Glenn McQuaid, Ty West, who you might know as the director of The House of the Devil, um, Adam Wingard, who made a very kind of popular festival movie called Your Next, which hasn't opened yet, but is very highly acclaimed from people who saw it. Um, Joe Swanberg is in there as well. Joe Swanberg has made a lot of quote-unquote mumblecore movies. And then there's a directing collective known as Radio Silence. And as I mentioned, it's an anthology film of sort of horror shorts, found footage shorts. Another movie that got a lot of acclaim on the festival circuit. It is coming to theaters shortly but first it's available on on demand and that's on august 30th one i haven't seen yet i'm really looking forward to checking this out i like a lot of the people that are involved in this movie and i'm i'm really looking forward to it uh, available on september 4th is the documentary shut up and play the hits this is directed by dylan southern and will lovelace it's a documentary about lcd sound system the band and their farewell performance at madison square garden allison i am a musical Let's just say idiot. So I, I know LCD sound system, but I'm not really that familiar with them. Is there any, what, what should I know? I, I think that it's mostly um, James Murphy is really the band. He's the he's, he's the guy. He's the guy. So I think you know this is the 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 band's like farewell show. Right. Like it's it's recorded at the farewell show at Madison Square Garden. But I you know I think that when he said he was retiring the band. There'll still be music from James Murphy, but I think there was a kind of symbolic, real sense of goodbye in this show that was, from everything I heard, I didn't get to go. Like, it was very epic, so. From what I've heard about the film, supposedly it does a really nice job of capturing the concert, that they did a really great job of cutting, cutting it together, shooting it. And uh, so if you're interested in the band, if you like the band, this is definitely something you might want to check out. It's called Shut Up and Play the Hits, and it is available starting on September Okay, so the sight and sound list, the, the 50 greatest films of all time, is really one of the, the main exercises at attempting to get at like a canon of what are the great films that exist right now. Now, Matt, you write about criticism, like about like a, the act of film criticism. So I'm sure you've stared so much at this list already. Do you want to give some highlights about, you know, kind of how often it takes place and how it's gathered and the process? Sure. Sight and Sound is a British magazine. And it's published by the BFI, the British Film Institute. And they do this poll once every 10 years. And I think started in 1952 and held every 10 years after that. 62, 72, 82, 92, 2002, and now 2012. And it started off just as a critics poll, but now they have two separate polls, critics and directors. And it's gotten bigger with each iteration. At this point, there are now 800, over 800 critics who gave ballots and there was over 350 directors who gave ballots so it's a fairly large sample and in this installment as i think uh, probably our listeners may have heard on the main film spotting podcast which also did a sight and sound related podcast vertigo has officially displaced citizen kane which was the number one film 
not in the first poll, not in 1952, but in every one after that, 62 onward until 2002, Citizen Kane came in number one. What was the, in the first poll, what was number one? I believe it was Bicycle Thieves. I'll okay. double check while we're talking, but I believe it was Bicycle Thieves was the original number one, and every time after that it was Citizen Kane. But this year, it was different. Vertigo, which was a perennial in the in the discussion movie, was always in the top ten somewhere, now dethroned. Citizen Kane as the number one movie of all time, according to critics, according to these 800 and something critics. Um, the directors actually picked a different favorite as well. They picked Tokyo Story uh, over Citizen Kane, which was one of our three. Was it one of our three? Am I wrong? I'm wrong. Never mind. The directors picked a different film. They picked Tokyo Story, also dethroning Citizen Kane. So we had two new best film of all time contenders over Citizen Kane. That was sort of the big news in this iteration of the Sight and Sound poll. So what we thought we would do on this podcast is talk about the poll, talk about maybe some of our own favorites, and how one goes about like formulating a top 10 ballot. Now, I have one. Part of one of the, the gigs that I have for this website called Screen Crush, they actually asked me and our, my other critic, Jordan Hoffman, to come up with our own top 10 lists, if they asked us. And I can't imagine why they didn't. <laughs> what our 10 would be. So I had a list handy. Allison, you said you don't have one. I don't. And actually, when I was thinking about this, I mean, I, I always do a top 10 list at the end of every year. But the idea of doing a 10 of all time is actually, I, I find actually impossible to wrap my head around, I think, because it changes so much for me depending on like where I am in, you know, even in my day and how I'm feeling. But also that I've become a lot more aware of the divergence between the films that I love best versus the ones I would say from any attempt at having a kind of like, I don't know, uh, like a look outside of my personal tastes as, as good, as close to objectively good right. as we can say. And, you know, I think that the sight and sound poll is very representative of people trying to say which films are objectively the best, you know, even though it's obviously opinions uh, matter in this, mm -hmm. but that I, I find what I think would probably be an exercise in my, you know, trying to set aside personal taste and, and judge what the best films are. I don't know that I find that that rewarding for me. So you think that there is, or at least we can try to create some sort of objective list. And you think when people are voting, they, they are specifically saying these are objectively the best and that this would be different than my favorites? Yes, Oh, yes. You definitely. think that's the case? Well, I think that when you look at the sight and sound list, especially mm -hmm. like the sight and sound list is very informed by film history. Yes. By films that changed how, uh, you know, films were put together. Mm -hmm. Say, uh, you know, uh, Man with a Movie Camera, which this year went from, I think it was like number 27 in the last poll, jumped up into the top 10. Right. I, I think that, you know, that's a film that was like a landmark of editing, of montage. Uh, I, you know, I don't know how many people would really be like, that is one of my favorite movies. You know, mm. I love to kick back uh, and relax, too. Ziga Vertov, baby. <laughs> exactly. You know, or even like, I mean, the films I would pick to relax to are probably not like it, my top 10, would not be a top 10. Anyway, but you know what I mean? That like, I think there's a lot of consideration of canon and of, of the idea of canon here, of the scope of films uh, that have been made and kind of how they've come to be the type of films we have today. You know, there's no film in the top 10 that like has been made in what, like the last 50 years. Um, I think 1968 was like the, in the top yeah, 10. In the top 10, the most recent is 2001, a space odyssey. Yeah. Right. And so. on the, on the top 50, there are only two films from uh, the, the 21st decade. century. Right. Yeah. So, you know, there's a real and drive and in the mood for love. Let's yeah. Just throw those out there. There's a real sense of the kind of, not just the slowness with which canon changes and accepts new entries, right. but also uh, that in some ways there's this is half calcified because it's informed by films that are also connected to like landmarks of like, you know, changes in style. Yeah. Everything you said is really interesting. And I, and I know this is very inside baseball-y, but it's one of the things that I find very interesting is like, how do you measure quote-unquote objective quality or importance in a in an artistic medium where subjective taste matters you know a whole heck of a lot if i hate citizen kane 
am I going to recognize its greatness? Am I going to care if it was important? You know what I mean? Like, if I find the experience boring, quote unquote, am I going to put it on my list? There has to be some element of taste involved, doesn't there? Yeah, I think so. But I think that there is also an element of setting aside that taste. There's a reason that the list doesn't change radically every iteration. Mm -hmm. And it's because there's a general sense of what a good, quote unquote, good movie is, a great movie, you know, and, and that idea has informs the list far beyond personal taste. Well, there's a little bit of an echo chamber too, right? Because the movies that are on the list are the movies that people go to watch when they're looking for, oh, these are the greatest movies of all time, and it somewhat weights them. Now, that can have a reverse effect in a way because a movie like Citizen Kane, people can go into it burdened with these high expectations and say, well, this is the best movie of all time. I've seen better movies than this. Vertigo is better, or Star Wars is better, or whatever it might be. So that, to some degree, is a little unfair also. But it is interesting in the way that things loop back around. I feel like we could talk in a general sense about this topic for two hours, but we've only got about an hour or so to do everything. So maybe we should get to our first picks. And I guess we should start with uh, that, that question of, like, Citizen Kane versus Vertigo. Do you think Vertigo is better than Citizen Kane? Is it, a, is it the <laughs> greatest so, film of all time? Oh, that's so hard. Uh, yes, I, think, I do think if I had to choose the greatest film of all time, I would choose Vertigo, which is why it's by my first pick out okay. of my Q shots. You know, 1958 film directed by Alfred Hitchcock. It's uh, only available on rental right now, unfortunately. Rental on Amazon, on iTunes, and on Vudu. Uh, I, you know, I think that... With all the admiration I have for Citizen Kane, Vertigo also, I mean, to bring up that personal side, like Vertigo also just had more, just like struck me so personally. Like I remember when I uh, when I saw it for the first time, it it frightened me in a lot of ways, not just because of the idea of the kind of ghostly possession that's set up in it. But the idea of Madeline as this concept that, uh, you know, M Madeline, the character who is played in the beginning by Kim Novak, uh, possessing Scotty, Jimmy Stewart's character, haunting him really, you know, to the point where he, he tries to remake her, uh, this woman that he fell in love with, in this, in this woman that he finds who looks like her. Well should be back from your face and pinned at the neck. I told her that. I told you that. We tried it. It just didn't seem to suit me. Please, Judy. You know, I, I had a friend who once told me that he thought the film was one of the... Uh, the most true romantic films that he'd ever he'd ever seen, which uh, upset me for many reasons. I say, that's a very sad statement yeah, I mean, from but, whoever that was. I know, but I think that it does kind of inform that central, extremely disturbing and profound idea in it that it's obsession with a figure that doesn't exist, you know, with a figure who is a creation, first of someone else, and then ultimately of Scotty. Right. Like she has become this full-fledged thing in his mind that he can't let go. And I think that in terms of even the parallels to artistic creation uh, and, you know, to, to filmmaking, uh, which are very powerful there, it's it just seems to me so both emotionally profound and also kind of metaphorically profound as well. You know, I, I think that it's a film that works so well as an ex as cinematic experience, like it's a thriller, if one that doesn't make a ton of sense, is really would be the, the most convoluted scheme possible. You, there are so many more that you could come up with that would work uh, a little easier than having to trick someone in order to uh, have them believe that a ghost murdered your wife. So I, I think, yeah, in terms of both uh, the way that it works as a story, the way that it works as a film, and as a piece of art, it really is, I think, like, amazingly profound and it, it has struck me like no other film has struck me before or since so uh i i do i i was pleased to see it up there as number one because it, at least personally i did feel i do feel that it's number one so that's vertigo it's available for rental on amazon itunes and voodoo one of the things that you said that interested me in your description was the fact that it can be seen as a metaphor for filmmaking and i'm wondering in some ways if we rightfully or wrongly, weigh movies a little more heavily 
if they have some sort of connection to filmmaking, as if they, if they say something about the medium that made them, if that lends them some greatness in some way. You could say the same things about Citizen Kane. It's definitely a movie about storytelling, about perspective, about so many different things. And it has so many different genres in it. You know, it has all these little tastes of comedy and drama and tragedy. And so you can feel all these different elements. It's kind of testing the bounds of the medium, which in some ways Vertigo is doing as well. So I think that's interesting. And you could also say that about my first picture, which I'll get to in a second. I will say, if it's up to me, I'm still picking Citizen Kane. I love Vertigo. This is like uh, Beatles versus Stones now. It is. It does have a little <laughs> bit of that. Like, there's no right answer because it's like you're nitpicking and you're picking like, I love I love both of these things. Which do I love more? Right. You know, which of my toes do I love more? Right, you know, right. Which of my siblings do I love more? Well, I love them all. Like, what am I going to do? That kind of thing, you know? So it's tough to say. But I, if it was up to me, Citizen Kane is still, is still number enough. one. Fair enough. Now- I did make a top 10 list, as I said, for that piece recently, but some of the movies on it we've already mentioned on SVU, so they're not going to be here amongst my cue shots, but let me just throw out there that we've mentioned them already. Videodrome, which might have been expiring, so you might not be able to watch it. Apocalypse Now would definitely be on my list. We've mentioned that before. And Metropolis, the Fritz Lang silent classic. Those last two I definitely know are still available on Netflix and Hulu in the case of the latter, so... If you want to watch those, you can. My first pick that we haven't talked about on the show before definitely has applications to this theory about movies about movies, and that's Rashomon from 1950, directed by Akira Kurosawa. It's available on Hulu+. Plus. It came in number 26 on the all-time list on Sight & Sound. I would give it a higher ranking. One way that I think you could assign greatness to a film is sort of, does it say something about the world in which it was made, and does it still say something about our world now? Not necessarily the only criteria, but that's one way of doing it. I think Rashomon will always be relevant. It certainly was relevant when it was made, and you look at it now, and it's still relevant, and it will always be relevant. And it, I, I decided to talk about it because I feel like it's a movie that everyone maybe pretends to have seen, but because they know what it's basically about, some people go, oh, I know what it's about. I don't need to see it. You know, I know what Rashomon means. It means people see things from different perspectives, so I get it. Uh, I've got the point. I don't need to see it. But it's such a great movie beyond that. It's 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 such an amazing film. And in some ways, it is about filmmaking. Um, it is about this one event told from multiple perspectives. But it's also told from multiple genres in some way. One version is almost like a crime story or an adventure movie. And one of them is almost like a woman's melodrama. And another one is like a ghost story. And the last one is almost a comedy. You know, it's not just the way that we see the world through different eyes, all of us. It's also how... Filmmakers see events through different perspectives, and you could tell almost any story in a different way, and that the filmmaker is using the raw materials of story as the blank canvas to do something with their camera, whether it's to excite us or to scare us or to make us laugh or whatever it is. And I think that the movie shows all of these different possibilities, the same way I kind of talked about Citizen Kane. The one thing rewatching it this time that I had forgotten that I thought was really interesting is yes, obviously, it is the story of this murder that's taken place and these testimonies about what happened and these people who were witnesses in the case trying to make sense of it because the testimonies are all conflicting. And the thing that I forgot was. That in all of the testimonies, the person who's speaking makes themselves guilty. That it's not a case of trying to assign blame to someone else. It's someone trying to assign blame to themselves, but in a way that elevates them, that makes them look kind of honorable or kind of makes them the hero of the story in some way, which I found totally fascinating and I had completely forgotten in the eight to ten years since I saw the movie. So I just like that, that when we tell a story, we might make ourselves look good and bad at the same time. And I think that's definitely true of the way people talk. So that's Rashomon. It is a classic. Even if you think you've seen it but haven't, you need to watch it. And it is available on Hulu+. Plus. Okay, so unlike you, Matt, I didn't necessarily have a top 10 that I picked other selections from. I did pick two, like, basically two films that were sort of in the minority on the list that were slightly unusual. Okay. And the one that I'm going to talk about next is... 
I think the only one that was from a female director in the top 50, which is Jean Dielman, 23 Quiet Commerce, 1080 Brussels. Maybe just call it Jean, Jean Dielman. Yeah. But uh, 1975 film, it's uh, currently available on Hulu Plus, though I think that this is a film that definitely benefits from being seen in theaters partially because of its length it's three hours long but also because this is a film that uses time as a kind of as one of its main weapons in storytelling directed by Chantal Ackerman this is uh the story of Jean Dielman played by Delphine Seyrig who is a young widow who cares for her often indifferent teenage son and she uh, get, makes some extra cash on the side for the household finances by turning a very business-like trick every every day or so. She has an appointment. And the film follows three days in her life, and it follows her routine, her kind of extremely mundane housewife routine in which she, you know, kind of goes around the house. She runs her errands. She makes meals. Uh, she has her, you know, gentleman visitors. But it is deliberately dull a lot of the time. When you want to show that someone is peeling potatoes in a film, it's very easy to establish. It takes like a shot of them peeling, uh, like starting to peel a potato. Then you cut to pile of finished potatoes, right? <laughs> right. But not in this film. In this film, the camera will stay on her as she slowly peels potatoes because this is what her day is like. And it wants to make you feel that, to feel that routine as it sl- starts to slightly go wrong in the next day. And finally just goes like kind of completely awry at the end of the third day. And I think what's so interesting about this film, other than the way that it uses time and the way that it uses boredom to put you in the place of its character and force you to kind of empathize, is that, you know, this is often referred to as uh, a feminist film. And I think it is, but it's also an interesting portrait of a character whose oppression is at least partially self-created. Uh, you know, because of the person she is, because of where she grew up, it's actually her routine being thrown off, you know, this incredibly dull, like just amount of work she has to do just to maintain things, maintain the house, maintain her life. And it's the idea that actually not something bad happening to her, but that something, you know, like a moment of like of pleasure that she doesn't really have in her life throws her so off, just just shakes her worldview so much. And there's something so interesting and so uh, so powerful about that. But it is one of the great films in that way. Placing you in its main character's position through through a force of will, basically, through through use of time. Uh, so that's uh, Jean Dielman. It is streaming on Hulu+. Plus. Uh, that's a movie I've never seen, but I've heard wonderful things about. But it is a daunting movie because Definitely. it is so long. And as you said, probably not a great movie to watch at home. So I've waited for a chance to see it in a theater. But I think at some point I'm going to have to just dive in. Right. Make the decision. You just I think the main thing is that you can't pause it and go do something else. Do you know what I mean? Like peel potatoes. It's, right. It's not the kind of movie that I, you can watch in chunks. That actually destroys the point. Right. That it is supposed to be a grind. Right. Yeah. So I'll pair your pick with uh, one of mine that's sort of a character study. And I think that's another way that you could measure the greatness of films as, as sort of a communication tool, as a way to show us something, to express some truthful aspect of the world, to show us the way someone sees things and make us feel like we understand them and make us feel like this person that is a creation is actually real. And that is the way I feel when I watch 1976's Taxi Driver. And it's not a character that I necessarily relate to personally. Oh, good. (laughs) You'll be happy to know. Yes. But there is something so compelling about him, even as he's so repulsive, even as he has these horrible, violent urges. There's something so sad and almost beautiful about him. And just rewatching a little bit of again, because I don't need to rewatch Taxi Driver to describe it. I've seen it so many times. But just listening to Bernard Herrmann's amazing score in this movie sums up everything about it. You know, it has these sort of two kind of themes that are at war. You know, there's this really intense kind of ominous, bombastic crescendo or these this series of crescendos, which always give way to this very romantic and simple saxophone melody. And they kind of go back and forth. And that says everything about 
the movie and about Travis Bickle. There are these intense eruptions, these violent moments. And then there are these other like tender, sad, sweet moments where he's talking to Sybil Shepard. And he kind of is like really charming, actually, the first time that they talk. But then, of course, it all goes horribly wrong. And, and the, the, the interplay between the two is so beautiful. It might be maybe the best score of all time. That's a discussion for another podcast, but certainly would be on my short list. Driver, which, by the way, was number 31 on Sight and Sound's list. It's available to purchase on Amazon and iTunes. Okay. Well, my next pick is one of the two 21st century films that we mentioned before. It is Mulholland Drive, 2001 film. It's available for rental on Amazon and iTunes and Vudu. It's, of course, directed by David Lynch. And was it kind of famously, it started off as a unimaginable TV pilot that he then added more to and made into a movie. And I cannot even begin to think of what a network thought when they were presented with, you know, with that. I know that David Lynch had a TV show once. Maybe someday he'll have one again. It's, I was going to say, doesn't it seem like he'd be better off making a TV show now? I think so. I would love to see that. Some cable channel would give David Lynch a chance, right? Right. They'd be like, run wild. And he runs wild. I mean, I yes. think in this... You know, this is a it's a film that certainly has uh, a lot of references to Persona, which we're going to talk about, uh, you know, as our long review. Yes. It also has just such amazing, unforgettable, surreal moments like the Silencio Club, where uh, there's a singer who collapses halfway through the song and then it keeps going or the monster behind the diner, which is one of the most dread filled sequences in cinema, really, I think, when when the man describes his dream and then goes out back. You're standing right over there. By that counter. You're in both dreams. And you're scared. I get even more frightened when I see how afraid you are and... Then I realize what it is. There's a man in back of this place. He's the one who's doing it. I can see him through the wall. I can see his face. I hope that I never see that face ever outside of a dream. What's really remarkable about Mulholland Drive is the way that, especially on second viewing, your sense of the reality, the real story that is is revealed, uh, it, you know, at the end in the latter third of the film, how that speaks to the the dreamy, hey, surreal, heightened story uh, of the first part, and in just terrible, sad, tragic ways, because you know the real story involves this. This woman who hasn't succeeded at her dreams of being an actress, who has had her heart broken by her lover and is, you know, completely just wretched and destroyed. And then she comes up with this story, you know, dreams up this story in which uh, she's so talented and also her lover is is stripped of her past and her friends and vulnerable and dependent on her. And they are both kind of innocent and pure again. And they, uh, you know, are going together on this journey. And I think that the way that you have uh, the story that that exists unto itself in the beginning that's um, so amazing uh, in terms of them just exploring why Laura Herring's character has lost her memory. Uh, when you understand kind of what's underneath all of that, the other narrative, uh, it becomes this incredible tragedy. It 
is a great film from David Lynch and I, I think a great film overall. And it's interesting that this is, you know, the film of his that is becoming the one that everyone agrees on as as his greatest. I do think, I don't know if I can decide which of his I like the best, but it is, I think, a really remarkable film. So that's Mulholland Drive and it's available for rental on Amazon, iTunes, and Vudu. Okay. A nice way to finish this up is with my last film, although we didn't plan it this way, in talking about another measurement of greatness in some ways can be the author, the director, and also the degree to which the film represents some sort of like romantic ideal of what an artist should be, which in some ways is very resourceful and outside of the system. And we like our masterpieces to have a kind of mythos about them. You know what I mean? Like in the case of Mulholland Drive, that David Lynch created this pilot for television and it was rejected and then he used this rejected fallen pilot to create this masterpiece this amazingly weird work of art but do you think that i feel like that's a kind of anti-mythos in that he didn't set out to be like i'm going to make a great film i kind of what i love about that is that he but it's a great story it is a great story yeah that's that's the thing though is we like that idea and that he didn't just say well forget it it's over he said, I'm going to use this somehow. Or like, I've had this lying around anyway. Why not tack a few more minutes on? <laughs> Either way, it's a great story. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also true of a lot of the movies. You know, we talk about Citizen Kane. And Orson Welles is a 26-year-old guy coming to Hollywood and taking on one of the most powerful men in the country. Uh, Vertigo has all these amazing obsessions with Alfred Hitchcock all bouncing around. There's a lot of that. There's not a lot of like, you know... Casablanca is like a masterpiece. It's a great movie, but it's also like a a production of a studio. You don't see a lot of people getting excited to talk about that in this context. So my last pick has its own sort of wonderful myth. It's this film called Playtime from 1967, directed by Jacques Tati. And Jacques Tati was a French filmmaker. He made all these wonderful, very personal comedies about his character that he played, this guy, Monsieur Hulot, who kind of bumbles through life and his misadventures, which are very awkward and kind of reminiscent of old silent comedies, they kind of just point out the charm and the sometimes the silliness of, of life. And in the case of Playtime, this is a movie kind of about where the world was headed, sort of the force of modernism. And this character coming into contact with this very cold, sterile world of modern architecture and office buildings. And to get the the look and the feel exactly right, he built essentially a small city. He created this gigantic set, which was called Tativille, in uh, a suburb of Paris to make sure that he could control every last thing. And this is what we love, right? This is what we love directors to do, to, to squander their resources, to throw caution into the wind, and to say, to make my masterpiece, I must build a city! And that is what he did. And, it, you know, it bankrupted him. It kind of destroyed his career, but the result was this absolute masterpiece and it is a fascinating film to watch another movie that is not great on the small screen because it was made in 70 millimeter it was designed to be seen in a theater on a big screen and the sound design is very important because a lot of times the shots are these very wide shots where you're kind of scanning the frame looking for information following characters as they move through and the sound design kind of directs us where to look with our eyes and that can be hard to pick up on a a laptop, or God forbid, an iPhone. A one, two, three, four. Oh, There are such amazing moments in the movie which are indescribably kind of magical. These miniature storylines that all kind of come together. It's really just an ensemble film about life at this time. And when I said before that a movie kind of talks about the world that it was made in, but also reflects on our world now, I mean, you can see the world of today in the world of 1967 Paris, you know? And you just kind of go, well, the movie he would have made about today would have been amazing and you hope someday somebody makes something as good about our time as Jacques Tati made about 1967 so that's playtime and it's available on Hulu Plus before we get to our listeners choice review let's go through some picks from listeners please that uh, were suggested to us on our Twitter account twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu 
Listener Kenny Meyer recommends In the Mood for Love, which is available on Netflix. That was also in the Sight and Sound Top 50. That's the other movie that was a recent pick. John Barry recommends Being John Malkovich, Old Boy, and Europa Europa, all available on Netflix. Being John Malkovich, interesting one. I don't think it would make my personal – definitely wouldn't make my personal top ten, but that is a movie I could see people voting for for sure. And uh, last we have Nick Burnham who recommends 12 Monkeys, Melancholia, very recent pick. Interesting. And Persona, all available on Netflix. And I guess that's a good segue into our Listener's Choice Review. brings us to our listeners choice review and this week listeners chose the aforementioned persona over the battle of algiers and ugetsu all films that ranked in the 2012 edition of sight and sounds top 50 of all time interestingly the most popular movie in our poll was also the most popular movie of the three in sight and sounds poll persona came in 17th it's the 17th greatest film of all time according to the voters in that poll and it ran away with over 55% of the votes amongst our listeners, while Battle of Algiers and Ugetsu, which were 48th and 50th greatest of all time in the poll, they lagged way behind amongst our listeners as well. The film, which was made in 1966 by the great Swedish director Ingmar Bergman, is about two women. Elizabeth, played by Liv Ullman, is a famous actress afflicted with a mysterious illness that has caused her to stop speaking. And Alma, played by B.B. Anderson, is her nurse. So Elizabeth is staying at the hospital, but the doctors have decided she's perfectly healthy. So they order her and Alma to stay at this remote cabin where they think she will recover more quickly. And there, Alma cares for Elizabeth and begins to sort of confide in her as well. She starts telling her these dark secrets from her past. And it's at that point that, let's just say, the line between the two women starts to blur. Now, Allison, since you haven't seen the other two films in our Listener's Choice poll this week, I can't ask you whether the listeners picked the best of the bunch. So instead, I will ask you this. Having now seen Persona, would it break your own list of the greatest films of all time? And if not, how close to the top would it get? I don't know. I mean, it's always interesting watching a film that you know, finally coming around to watching a film that is as influential as Persona, mm -hmm. because you're aware of all of the things that you've consumed before that reference it, you know, and in this case, so many, so many films have been, you know, influenced so much TV to the point where even I've seen like, you know, things that parody persona and make fun of it. Yes. So it is always a little strange to have to deal with that of kind of being familiar with something without ever having seen it before. Uh, I do think it's a, it's a pretty remarkable film. Uh, and I do think that, it is also very of its time in a way. You know, I, I do wonder with Bergman, you know, I, I think that there's always a sense that Bergman is kind of slipping in terms of like the consideration of the great auteurs mm -hmm. compared to others uh, in the in the last few decades. I think maybe just because this is a film that's so uh, openly about big themes, you know, and about big ideas in a way that... Uh, is not really in fashion anymore. This is a film that very aggressively sets out to be about art, right? Uh, to be to be a piece of art, and that's both something interesting and something to have you have to kind of wrestle with. So uh, yeah, no. If I had a top ten, which I, I don't really, I've already told you, I've flaked out on that. But uh, I I don't know that this, this would crack it. But I do really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. I think that it's incredibly rich uh, I, I, and does feature two really really interesting performances and performance and ideas about uh, how two people can interact and how one person can yet kind of consume the other in a way mm -hmm. uh, so what I wanted to ask you Matt uh, because I was kind of turning this over in my head uh, the the film has a few references to real life disasters to real life tragedies atrocities uh, there's a moment where 
Elizabeth looks at a picture of the hol- like from the Holocaust, yes. and there's another where she watches on TV a self the self immolating monk who's yes. protesting. How do you see these fitting into her general kind of dissolving, you know, or like I don't know, retreat, retreat from other people, basically? Right. I think you you have to kind of read those as what you were saying, sort of stabs at bigness or greatness. And I would agree with you that those are kind of the weaker parts of the film. I think the most effective stuff is just the drama between these two women and the the interplay between them and the shifting power dynamics between them, which are all so fascinating. But you're right that this movie has become kind of a cliche, especially the opening, this sort of non-narrative avant-garde-ish montage of all these moments. I mean, it starts with sort of like a a projector lamp coming on, and then there's a film. You see like a film reel, and it's, you know, suggesting this is a movie. And then there are all these strange images and, and things like that that lead right through the credits. And I found, as you said, those things are so familiar. In some ways, it's almost like a stereotype of an art film. And we've seen those things co-opted and even made fun of so many times that the impact that they probably had in the 1960s is a little blunted now. And those are the parts that feel the most dated to me. The drama, on the other hand, I feel like is is fantastic. And all of those scenes between the two women, which are actually not that hard to understand. They're very open. They're very easy to see what's going on. Those are the ones that haven't aged at all. And those are the scenes that I found most riveting, particularly like the scene where Alma has told this dark secret to Elizabeth. And she because she thinks that because she can't speak, it's like having this amazing confidant. But then Elizabeth has essentially revealed the secret to someone. I won't say how or whatever. And that completely changes the dynamic between them. And then there's a, a scene where a glass breaks and there's a shard of the glass sitting on the ground. And suddenly Alma is in the position not to speak and to see what happens as a result. And I just thought that scene is amazing yeah it is amazing and it also it almost it breaks the film in two yes. in a way like the power literally. dynamic shift literally it breaks at the, the film. end of that scene and there then, is like a big yeah moment like, of break of like it a literal like, break. like burning almost yes. yeah and then we when we come back the power dynamics have shifted entirely mm-hmm. and yeah i do think even those early scenes before the sense of reality starts dripping away from the whole middle like the main portion of the film with the two women are really complex and uh and so threaded through with so many things going on including just the very idea of elizabeth's ailment being that she's just chosen to stop speaking right you know that you can call it a mental illness you know but it also is a force of will she she is withdrawing and uh, the idea of that and the idea of how the doctor reads it when she sends her away which is that like you feel like no one knows you Right. And uh, they they only see what you choose to present to the world. And therefore, you kind of stop presenting anything to the world as this act of protest or maybe like of just nihilism, Mm -hmm. uh, I I think, is one that's really resonant. And you can see why Alma is almost afraid of her in the beginning, you know, is afraid that she's going to get sucked into this somehow, because by choosing not to engage, you force other people to fill that silence. Right. And you see that a lot with Alma. She can't stop talking. Yeah. She, she just starts just talking and talking. And, and then she starts to like it, it seems, you know, because like I said, she has this person who's not going to interrupt. And also she, as she thinks, she'll just never tell her secrets, which there's something very alluring about that idea, though. You can relate to that. Like, oh, I could unburden myself. These things that we hold inside and want to share, but we don't because we're afraid of the repercussions. Well, here's the way to do it without repercussions. So all of that is is really amazing. And also you have a character who's much more simple, right? That she's uh, much less guarded. She's like, there's a slight class difference. She's Mm -hmm. a nurse. She's got... Um, a fiance. She has a very clear sense of what her life is going to be like. Not necessarily one that she's fully excited about, but one that she's accepted. She's accepted it, yeah. yeah. And that uh, she's going to do these things. And that, you know, so there's a kind of enchantment with this character who is this great artist. But there's also a real questioning of what it means to be an artist because uh, Elizabeth is kind of parasitic, right? She is using, is kind of studying this girl Mm. is kind of analyzing her and is also i I think there's a clear there's a real sense in the film of envious of 
the the kind of emotional uh, the way that Alma feels emotion so strongly, she doesn't have a filter. She doesn't really control things very well, whereas Elizabeth is all control. In fact, that's what her profession is, right? It's kind of controlling the emotions that you, you put out in the world as an actress. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I hadn't really thought of it that way. But I think that's one of the things that I like about the movie is that in some ways it's very blunt. I mean, some of those images in the beginning of the movie and then invoking these real-world horrors, I mean, you can't hit people over the head any harder than that. And then on the other hand, there are these sort of very subtle touches, and there's some things that are omitted or alluded to that aren't explicitly clear and invite interpretation. One of the things that I noticed this time watching it that I hadn't noticed the other time was like the use of curtains in the movie, these gauzy sort of curtains, which we often see... Elizabeth framed with there are scenes where we'll see Alma in the foreground and then in the background we'll see Elizabeth through these like gauzy curtains it's repeated over and over again in the movie and it becomes this motif uh, about the way that we we see people but we don't see them as clearly as we think there's always something obscuring them that we always have our guard up the same idea that comes with Alma and her dark story you know that we have this true self within us but that we're afraid to reveal it. And I thought that that was really interesting and, and fun to read into. And then on the other hand, you have so many of those famous shots of their faces at perpendicular angles where what is going on there is sort of like, you know, it's like taking the hammer to the film and punching it into the cellular. Like, I think we get it. You know what I mean? There's an interesting interplay between the super intensely overt and the very subtle. Yeah, I agree. That famous shot where it's basically it's someone standing in profile and then the other person behind them facing the camera so that they're basically even like their noses are kind of lined up. Right. If you could put it that way. But I think overall, you know, that like famous and far too often referenced shot aside, this is also a film that makes uh, a really nice use of faces. It's in love with close-ups. It's in love with just the angles of both of these women's faces. The shot where they're standing in front of a mirror, I presume. I don't know if they ever show the mirror, but uh, when they're standing together, and Elizabeth kind of like holds Alma's face up for consideration. And it's like a fond gesture, but it's also a threatening gesture is such a beautiful shot, but also so loaded with different ways to read it that it's almost predatory as much as it's almost parental as well. Well, she's sweeping her hair off her face, which kind of makes her look more like her, right? It's another symbol of they're mixing their personalities or their merging of personalities, which also calls to mind one of, speaking of close-ups, probably the most disturbing shot in the film where Bergman like literally replaces half of one of their faces with the half of the other, and it almost looks like a person. It's so close to a believable human being that the slight discrepancies make it incredibly horrifying. Like it's a, it's like an image that you want you want to look away from, but it is another one of those really powerful close-ups that you mentioned. Uh, so wouldn't make our top ten lists, but an excellent movie. Has dated a little bit. There are some things about it that seem a little dated. Do we hold that against the film, though? That's the that's another question to ask. Because, as you said, it was so influential, and it's been copied so many times that, like, that affects the way that it affects us. But that, that's not fair to the movie at all, because the movie can't... I'm sorry I made such an influential movie that you all copied. You know what I mean? In some ways, it's a compliment that kind of hurts the movie, which is fascinating. I don't know how we should react to that. I don't know either. I think it's the same way that authors and poets slip in and out of fashion, like ones that are long dead and long part of the canon kind of rise in esteem and then get replaced. Mm -hmm. It just also speaks to where we are in terms of consumption of film and in terms of what we think makes great film that could change you know Bergman could certainly there could be a time it, where we don't see that as dated anymore you know and that it it seems once again fresh so who's to say who's to say all right well that is persona and it is available on Netflix we close out every episode of SVU with our Behind the Eight Ball segment. This is where we give you a rapid-fire countdown of three new releases, two expiring titles, and one random film from our queue. Allison, you are going to go first this time? I am. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, give us three new releases. Okay, the first is Street Fight, 2005 documentary, which is now on Hulu. 
It's from Marshall Curry, who has gone on to direct other uh, Oscar-nominated documentaries. But this one is about Cory Booker's 2002 campaign against Sharp James uh, for mayor of Newark. And it's just an amazing portrait of an extremely dirty uh, election ca- uh, campaign and one that is a really interesting portrait of politics in general. Uh, I highly recommend it. Next is The Man in Black, 1950 film. It is up on YouTube. It is actually one of the few films from uh, the Hammer Films back catalog that they've put up for free on their new YouTube channel. This one is directed by Francis Searle and is about a man who thinks that his new wife is attempting to drive his daughter from his first marriage insane. And then he dies in a yoga accident. Or does he? Dun, dun, dun. And finally, House of Pleasures. Uh, This is from last year. It is up on Netflix uh, from Bertrand Bonello. It was in uh, Cannes last year. And it's basically the story of a luxurious Parisian brothel, you know, as you will, and uh, at the dawning of the 20th century. And it's just about the prostitutes who live there. Uh, a film that is a great favorite of many friends of mine, uh, critic friends of mine. I have not had a chance to watch it yet, but it is high on my list. So House of Pleasures on Netflix. Okay. Two expiring titles. Okay. These are both expiring September 1st on Netflix. The first is Paradise Now from Hani Abu Assad. And it's a film about two Palestinian men who've been recruited to carry out suicide bombing attacks uh, in Israel. And it is presents this really complex, very humanizing portrait of this terrible action. And it's very smart. And I really think that it's, uh, it's important in that angle. And then the second film is White Palace, which is uh, Susan Sarandon as a working class diner waitress who begins a romantic relationship with a younger man, a grieving middle class widower played by James Spader. And uh, they're just really good together, the two of them. It's, you know, not a perfect film, but I think a really kind of great, unusual screen relationship. Okay, and one random film from your queue? You gave me number 29, uh, which is actually a film that I've already seen, but it's one that I put on my queue to remind myself I wanted to take another look at. And it's the Japanese film Who's Kamu Anyway from 2005, directed by Mitsuo Yanagimachi. And it's about a group of film students who are making a student film. It is just filled with incredible inside film references including an opening shot that's a touch of evil reference a long tracking shot and is really i think if you're a film fan an interesting film in that it's about what it's like when other people are a whole group of people are completely steeped in film culture and can only talk about their real lives in reference to films so that's who's Camus anyway and that is uh on netflix okay okay now it's your turn it's my turn i am ready all right three new films first up the remake from 2010 of the roger corman classic piranha this version was directed by alexander aja a really funny movie a really campy treat i thought with some very nice performances from adam scott and ving rames and a really game cast who know exactly what kind of movie they're in and are having a lot of fun with the premise available starting on september 1st one of my favorite underrated sequels of all time the two jakes which is the sequel to chinatown directed by jack nicholson a lot of people hate this movie but i've always found it a really fascinating story and a really interesting movie And it's obviously burdened with the fact that it is a sequel to one of the most beloved movies of all time. But I think if you can get past that and get past the fact that it's not as good as Chinatown, it is a really interesting movie. And I really recommend people check it out with an open mind. And last, I've got another recent film from 2010. It's called The Yellow Sea, directed by Na Hong Jin. This is uh, also available on Netflix starting on August 28th. This is another – I love Korean films. This is another Korean – not quite a revenge film, but certainly very violent in that Korean revenge film tradition. It's about a cab driver who's very deep in debt. He uh, he put on all this debt to send his wife to – across the border, and she's vanished. And now he's without a wife, and he's deep in debt, and he makes this sort of deal with the devil where he agrees to kill someone basically in exchange for the debt being forgiven. And while he – commits the crime he can also search for the wife who's gone missing and it all spirals downhill from there so that's the yellow sea on netflix okay two expiring films okay both of these films are expiring on september 1st first up best in show the christopher guest classic uh improvised comedy about a dog show if you haven't seen it it is delightful also expiring on september 1st 
a interesting film, not a great film, but an interesting film called White Nights, which we talked about on our old podcast, on a podcast all about dance films. This is a film yes. about, it's a weird hybrid of dance and spy movie yes. combined with Mikhail Baryshnikov and Gregory Hines. They're both defectors. He's defected from, or trying to defect from Russia. Hines has defected from the United States. They come together and they dance and there's an escape plan hatched. Not a great film, but an interesting one. And it's one worth looking at and some amazing dance sequences as well. So that's White Knights. Okay, and one from your queue. You gave me number two, which number two on my queue right now is the British spy series MI5, which my wife and I have started watching. We've been kind of searching around for a new series. We, we recently watched Friday Night Lights, I think I mentioned on the show, and we finished that. So now we were looking for a new show. We started MI5. It's a British spy series, a little more gritty than, you know, James Bond or something like that. It's pretty good. We don't love it, but we've enjoyed it. There's some good episodes. Some episodes are better than others. Have you ever watched the show, Allison? I've seen maybe the first two seasons, I think. They start, like many British shows, replacing cast members, kind of, who go off to become famous. In the case of their two actors in that who went on to, uh, have gone on to have Keely Hawes and um, Matthew Matthew McFadden. Yes, who have gone on to kind of like uh, film careers, some film careers. Uh, but yeah, so then I kind of, it lost me after they no. started. Well, thanks for spoiling it and bumming Vi Vibe all in one fell swoop. Uh-huh. Well no done. problem. Thank That's you. That's MI5 uh, on Netflix. Before we get to our listeners' choice picks for the next episode, we actually have a giveaway for you. Um, Matt has, he can tell you a bit about what the prize is, but we are going to resurrect a game that we used to play in our old podcast on the IFC podcast. Yes, it was very popular. People have been asking for us to bring it back. So we'll, at least for this one episode, we'll be bringing it back. All right. Yeah. Well, tell us about the, the, the prize. Yeah, the prize is a book. It's called Sex, Politics, and Religion in Star Wars, edited by Douglas Brody and Leah Denica. It's an anthology of essays about Star Wars uh, in the areas of sex, politics, and religion. It's from uh, Scarecrow Press. And I actually have an essay in the book. That's Ooh. that's why I have a copy to give away. I wanted to uh, kind of tell people that the book is out there. It is available if you're interested. And we have a copy to give away. And the name of my essay, by the way, is called The War for Star Wars. And it's about fandom. It's a, It actually isn't about sex, politics, or religion. But don't tell anyone. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's about fandom and the way that fandom is kind of battling with George Lucas for control of the series. I'm actually really proud with how it came out. I think it's a, an interesting essay. Not to pat myself on the back. But we have a <laughs> copy of the book to give away. And the way we're going to give it away is play playing our old game called The Keyword Game. And if you've never heard us do it before, here's how it works. Allison and I pick a movie related to our topic on the show, in this case, the sight and sound poll. And we would select five keywords from that movie's IMDb plot keyword page. And we give them to you as clues. And then you give us your guess. And then from everyone who guesses right, we randomly select one winner. And that winner gets the prize. In this case our copy of the book. So, Allison, are we ready to give away the keywords? Yes. All right, here they are. Here are your keywords. Valentine's Day, trombone, organized crime, millionaire, and camera focus on a female butt. Oh, IMDb. (laughs) Oh, IMDb plot keyword pages. You are so wise. If you think you know what movie those keywords belong to, email us at feedback at filmspottingsvu.com. Your guests must be received by Monday, September 3rd at noon. And now it's time for our listeners' choice picks. The first is The Moth Diaries, uh, which is on Netflix or going to be on Netflix on August 28th. This is the latest film from director Mary Heron, who is responsible for American Psycho and the notorious Betty Page. Uh, It's a story about a possible vampire at a girls' boarding school. It was not a particularly well-received film critically when it came out. Uh, It premiered last year. But, you know, Heron is such an interesting filmmaker. And so we're really intrigued to look at this film anyway. It just sounds at least and certainly it's it's not it's like an anti-Twilight from everything I've read. So uh, that that is that appeals to you in some way, Allison. Yes, I I think we're in a pretty Twilight heavy time right now. Yes. 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 So the next pick is Matt. The next pick is actually a movie we've already mentioned on the show. It is VHS, which will be available starting on August 30th on iTunes and VOD. And I think as we alluded to before, we're just very excited to see this movie. We're really looking forward to seeing it. So we thought, why not give us the opportunity perhaps to talk about it as one of our listeners' choice films. Again, it's a anthology horror found footage movie. I don't think we have to say much more than that. 
Okay, and the last pick is Amores Peros, which is going to be on Netflix on September 1st. This was the first feature from Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu, who went on to do Babel and Beautiful. And uh, it was written by Guillermo Arriaga, with uh, whom he collaborated on a, several films, including Babel and 21 Grams. Uh, and this is uh, three connected stories that surround basically mistreatment of animals and featured in a very early film role for him, Gael Garcia Bernal, in a major role. You know, this was a film that was very acclaimed at the time. And I think we're interested in looking at that now that I think people have grown pretty wary of the yeah. interconnected, like things are all all intertwined it's type of film. A, much like Persona, it's a idea that was really popular and had a lot of cachet and became so copied by inferior lookalikes, soundalikes, that it's affected the way we look at all of these movies. So yeah, we thought it would be interesting to sort of give a little bit of a reevaluation to that film and maybe the whole oeuvre of these sorts of movies. Right, and so that's Amoris Peros, and it is on Netflix. All right, so which movie should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? Send your pick to feedback at filmspottingsvu.com or enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, September 3rd at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu, and you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on our next episode, which will be... On Monday or Tuesday, we seem to be edging toward Tuesday here, but uh, September 10th or 11th. Filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The Filmspotting SVU remixed theme song is by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.com. And we will be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie review that you pick. In the meantime, you can follow me and Matt on Twitter at twitter.com slash Allison Wilmore and twitter.com slash Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at twitter.com slash SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from SVU listeners. For Filmspotting SVU, I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Thanks for listening. <laughs>